Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. So we're in the second week of this series that is entitled Go and Tell. And as I mentioned last week, when you get to the end of all four of the Gospels, Jesus uh, basically gives his marching orders to all of his disciples. And, and really, the marching orders are all the same. He just uses different phrases to basically say the same thing. And we talked about this last week, but I just want to kind of look at these passages again real quick. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. At the end of Mark, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. He's basically saying the same thing about making disciples. You get to the end of Luke, and Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. Like, you have seen all of this that I have done and all this that I have said. You are witnesses. Now go and testify. Go and witness. Go and and go into the world and share with others what you have seen. And then in John, at the end of John, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you into the world. Go, just another way of saying it. And then at the beginning of Acts, which is kind of the second half of Luke's gospel, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Five different ways of basically saying the same thing. Go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell what you've witnessed. Go and tell others uh, this gospel story. Go and, and tell others what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, what a disciple looks like. Like, go and tell. Now, last week we talked about how the gospel is probably bigger than most of us tend to, to think about it because sometimes we, we truncate the gospel, we reduce the gospel down to kind of our little version of the gospel. And at the beginning of Mark in chapter 1, uh, this is how Jesus uh, talks about the gospel. He says, it says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. In other words, this is what you've been waiting for for all of these centuries. This is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. This is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Like, this is what you have been waiting for. Now is the time. This is the time. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is not just something that's out there in the future, that one day that you will experience the kingdom of God is right here. The kingdom of God is right now. So repent, he says. Rethink. Rethink everything that you think and you know about who God is and who you are and what the good life actually is. Rethink all of that stuff and turn from those behaviors and turn from those attitudes and believe the good news. Put your trust, put your confidence in Jesus to heal you, to save you, to rescue you, to free you, to lead you to the life that your soul aches for. 
Now this week, we're going to look at a passage that's found in Matthew 19. And it's a story, it's an encounter that Jesus has that I think causes us to rethink maybe a little bit, to rediscover a little bit what the gospel is really all about. It's an encounter that Jesus has with someone who's often referred to as the rich young ruler, a rich young man, a young man that has a lot of resources, a lot of money, has been very, very successful in life. And it begins this way. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked Jesus, teacher, a rabbi, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What do I have to do to get eternal life? Now, for those of us that want to share the gospel with other people, like we have a heart, we say we really want to share what we've experienced. Like, for those of us that want to share the gospel, like, that's the dream question. Like, that's like the softball question. That's the question that, that we wish that our coworker or our friend or our family member that doesn't know Jesus, that's the question that we wish that, that they would ask. Like, we just, we wish to just, Rod, I just, I have a question. Yes, what is it? My question is, I was just thinking, I was just thinking, what do I need to do to, to get eternal life? And it's just like, I'm so glad you asked that question. Like, I've got an answer for that question. Like, that's the question that all of us, it's hardly ever the question that any of us get. It's rarely the question that someone leads with, but like that's the dream question, and that's the question that Jesus gets. Now, in response to that question, Jesus doesn't share with this guy what we tend to think of as a typical presentation of the gospel. Like there's lots of different ways to communicate the gospel and lots of different presentations of the gospel, and maybe there's some presentations that you've learned or memorized or kind of your go-to when you're telling someone else about Jesus. But the way Jesus responds is not really the way that you would think. In fact, Jesus' answer is really a little surprising. And this is what I love about Jesus and what I love about what we read about Jesus in the Gospels is that he shares the gospel in different ways with different people. And, and he does that depending on like their situation in life and what they are going through and the obstacles maybe that they are facing to really come into a relationship with this God who has created them and loves them and all of that. It's the same gospel, just different ways of communicating it. And this is how Jesus responds to this rich young guy, this very, very successful guy, when he asks him, teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus responds this way, if you want to enter life, and then the next thing he says is probably not anything that you've ever said to someone when you were trying to share the gospel. Like, I just have a feeling it isn't. Is that he says, if you want to enter into life, Jesus says, obey the commandments. Obey the commandments. And the man asked, well, which ones? And Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father, honor your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I have a feeling that any of you that came from fairly evangelistic churches, that when you have shared the gospel with someone, that maybe is not where you started. But that's where Jesus starts. 
He says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. So Jesus' initial response to this guy is basically to tell him if he wants to get eternal life, he needs to keep the Ten Commandments. And when he tells him this, this is how the young man responds. All of these, talking about the Ten Commandments, talking about all the commandments, all of these have I kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? So this young man tells Jesus he's been obediently following the Ten Commandments, but he still has this sense that something is lacking. He still has this sense that something is missing in his life. And Jesus believes both the things that the young man says. That's the thing that's interesting, is that Jesus believes both those things. Like, he doesn't go back at him and says, well, maybe you haven't, like, fully been, you know, following the Ten Commandments. No, he believes that he has been obedient to the Ten Commandments. He, he, either he knows that, right, because he's God and he knows that, or he just believes what this young man is saying like he takes him at his word he believes that he is uh, been has been obeying the ten commandments but he also believes the young man when he says that there is still something lacking that there is still something missing and he agrees with that and he says there is there is something that's still lacking there is something that's still missing And this is a great reminder that experiencing eternal life is about more, and I want you to hear me all the way through when I talk about this, it's about more than following the rules. And I think most of us, like, if we've been a part of churches like this church, we get that. Like, it's about more than just following the rules. It's about more than just living a good moral life, just being a good moral person. You can can live a good life, you can live a moral life and still miss out on eternal life. I think most of us maybe are aware of that. But uh, eternal life is not about living less than a good moral life either. See, sometimes when we say eternal life is not just about living a good moral life, we sometimes imply that a good moral life is like irrelevant. And that's not what Jesus is saying either. It's not that eternal life is about living an immoral life. It's not about living less than a moral life. He's just saying it's about so much more than just morality. And then Jesus goes on to tell this young man what it is. It says in verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, and we'll define that here in a second, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then... Come and follow me. Now, two things here I want you to notice. When Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, he's not talking about moral perfection. The word perfect here means probably maybe even better translated as complete. Jesus is saying, if you want to live, if you want to live a complete life, if you want to live a life where nothing is lacking, if you want to live a life where nothing is missing, then sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, here's what's interesting about what Jesus says there. And I've heard this passage preached a lot growing up. My dad was a pastor, brother was a pastor. Like I've heard this preached a lot, and and they all did a great job. I've heard it preached in other settings, and, and it went different ways. But the, the part of this verse that we tend to focus on and debate sometimes and struggle with and all of that, the part that we tend to focus on is Jesus telling this very rich young man 
to sell your possessions and give to the poor. But here's what I would say, is that when you focus on that part of the verse, uh, when you do that, you are, as they say in the news business, I think, burying the lead. Because the lead in, in that verse, the lead in this passage is not sell all your possessions. The lead in this passage is what Jesus says to him after he says, sell all your possessions. When he tells the young man, come and follow me. Now, the reason Jesus wants the young man to sell all his possessions is not because having no possessions is more spiritual than having possessions. And I've heard lots of debates on can you be spiritual and have resources and should you not have resources, should you divest of all your resources, all that. That's not what Jesus is dealing with here. It's not, he's not telling him to sell all of his possessions because having no possessions is more spiritual than having lots of possessions. Jesus wants him to sell all his possessions because Jesus knows that with, with this young man, it's the acquisition and the management of his, possession, his possessions that is keeping him from following Jesus. And this is the man's response. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, again, Jesus is not saying that in order to experience eternal life, you have to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. Now, Jesus has a lot to say about the way we live our lives and living lives that are generous. He has a lot to say about giving to the marginalized, giving to those who are on the edge of society. He has a lot to say about pouring in to the lives of those who are economically poor and spiritually poor and poor in every way and how we should live generous lives. Like he has a lot to say about the fact that we as followers of Jesus need to be focused on responding to the needs of the poor. But he is not, he is not saying that it's just more spiritual to have less possessions than it is to have more possessions. It's the acquisition and management that is keeping him from following Jesus. Now, Here's the thing, Jesus is saying that in order to experience eternal life, you have to follow Jesus. Uh, you, have to, you cannot experience eternal life unless you follow Jesus. That is the essence of what Jesus is saying. And he's saying that, that for a lot of people, that it's true that for a lot of people, that it's incredibly easy to become more preoccupied with managing our stuff than to be preoccupied with following Jesus. That's why he says later on, he didn't read the past, he said it's, it's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. There's a historical context for that. But Jesus is just saying it's really hard <laughs> because possessions tend to dominate our thinking and our time and our creative spirit and we begin to trust more in the possessions than we trust in God and so it's just really really hard sometimes to be preoccupied with following Jesus and trusting Jesus when we are preoccupied with managing our possessions and trusting in our possessions but he is saying more than that it isn't just money that can cause us to do that. You can become preoccupied 
with lots of things that keep you from following Jesus. You can become preoccupied with pursuing a relationship or pursuing a career or pursuing success or pursuing knowledge or pursuing any number of other things. All good things, but it's pretty easy to become more preoccupied with pursuing those things than to be preoccupied with pursuing Jesus. Now, to really understand what this young man is asking when he asks the question, what must I do to get eternal life? You have to, of course, understand what does the young man mean by that phrase, eternal life? And he's not asking Jesus, how do I get to heaven when I die? Like, oftentimes, we just immediately translate eternal life in a passage like this with how do I get to heaven when I die. Now, that's an important issue in terms of where you're going to go after you die, but that's not the question that this man is asking when he says, how can I get eternal life? As a first century Jew, he wouldn't even think of heaven in the same way that we think of heaven. Remember last week, we talked about how the Jews are waiting for this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah who was going to come, was going to make everything right, was going to usher in the kingdom of God where, where God rules and where God's kingdom never ends. It doesn't come and go. It's, it's eternal. It never ends. And now Jesus is declaring that he is that Messiah and he is ushering in that kingdom. And this young man has just heard Jesus declaring that. He knows that Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah and he is ushering in this, this kingdom, this kingdom that will never end. So the question that this young man is asking when he says, what must I do to get eternal life is what do I need to do to be a part of that kingdom? Like, I want to be a part of that kingdom, Jesus. I want to be a part of this kingdom where God rules and, and it's not Rome that rules, it's God that rules. I want to be a part of this kingdom that never ends, that it doesn't, it doesn't come and go the way that the Old Testament Israel at times was in power and then not in power. Like, I want to be a part of that kind of kingdom, this kingdom that never ends. Now, according to Jesus, and this is where sometimes we miss the fullness of, the, of, of what it means to experience eternal life, because for Jesus, eternal life, eternal life is not just quantitative, it is also qualitative. It is not just about life that goes on indefinitely. It is not just about life that, that goes on for eternity. It is also about the flourishing of that life. Listen to how Jesus, Jesus describes eternal life. In case you're kind of going, well, Rod, I'm not sure that's really what the Bible says. It sounds like maybe that's more what you're saying. No, no, no. This is what Jesus says. In the one place where Jesus actually defines eternal life, this is how Jesus defines eternal life. Now, this is eternal life, he says in John 17. Now, this is eternal life. That they may know you, talking about the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, that's about as definitive a definition of eternal life that you will ever 
get. According to Jesus, eternal life is knowing God as revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus talks about knowing, he's not just talking about cognitive knowledge. He's not just talking about knowing about God. He's talking about, he's talking about knowing God the way that we, we know our spouse or we know our kids or we know a close friend that we've had for years and years. It's the kind of knowing that comes from personal experience. It's the kind of knowing that comes from interacting with each other, of doing life together, of spending time together. John Ortberg says it this way, to know God is to live a rich, moment-by-moment, gratitude-soaked, participatory life together. What a great definition. To know God is to live a rich, moment-by-moment, gratitude-soaked, participatory life together. And here's something else that helps us to better understand what eternal life is all about. The Bible uses the word eternal life or the phrase eternal life and salvation and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven interchangeably. And you see that actually in this text in Matthew 19 that we're looking at today. Let me just kind of walk through it for you. The young man asked the question, what must I do to get eternal life? That's in verse 16. Then Jesus talking to his disciples about this man's response to what Jesus said about what you need to do to get eternal life. He says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's using the term kingdom of heaven in the same way that the question is being asked about eternal life. He's saying it's hard, you can read it this way, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to get eternal life. Get eternal life. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Same thing. And then in verse 24, Jesus repeats the same thing, just using a different phrase. He says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Enter the kingdom of God. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Get eternal life. Three different ways of saying the same thing. And then the disciples ask, well then, if that's the case, who can be saved? Of course, his answer is nothing is impossible with God. And he goes on from there. But their question is, who can be saved? Same, they're talking about the same thing. Who can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom of heaven? Who can enter the kingdom of God? Who can get eternal life? They're asking that same thing. Four different ways. You see these words used interchangeably, not just in this text. You see these words used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk primarily about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. John talks primarily about eternal life. Paul talks primarily about salvation. Now, they aren't talking about four different things. They're talking about the same thing just described in four different ways. So if you say, well, I'm going to do a study now on the kingdom of God, and now I'm going to do a study on the kingdom of heaven, and now I'm going to do a study on eternal life, and now I'm going to do a study on salvation, you're, you're going to realize that, no, that's not the way that you want to study it because those are four different ways of saying the same thing. It's the same way of talking about eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what it means to be saved. Now, Here's the deal. If receiving eternal life and entering into the kingdom of God and entering into the kingdom of heaven and being saved 
are all talking about the same thing, then it's really important to understand what it means to be saved. Like in evangelistic churches like ours, we use that phrase all the time. Are you saved? Have you been saved? Um, Have they experienced salvation? Like we talk about salvation. We talk about being saved, what it means to be saved. Sometimes the idea of salvation can get truncated and reduced to something that really does not fully capture the gospel that Jesus preached. Now, let me just mention a few of the ways that the idea of salvation, what it means to be saved, gets sometimes truncated. It's not that that there are not elements of each one of these things. I'm going to talk about four different things. It's not that there's not elements of these that are true. It's just that they don't get at the whole fullness of the gospel. Let me just mention four here. There is the, uh, what I would call the meeting the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven gospel. All right, let me just say that again. The meeting the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven gospel. This gospel is focused on a God who just cares about us checking all the boxes so that we can get into heaven. Pray a prayer and you are in. Everything else is just kind of optional equipment. The question Uh, Are you saved just becomes about asking whether you have met the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when you die. John Ortberg says, uh, in this way of thinking about salvation, the goal is to get from here to up there. It's about how to know for sure that you're heading to the good place. Ironically, it doesn't necessarily involve a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. It doesn't involve what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to carry out what Jesus said when he said, go into all the world and make disciples. Unfortunately, the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven doesn't get into all of that at all. The Bible talks about salvation as a marriage, there's lots of different like metaphors in Scripture, but the one I find most compelling is this metaphor of salvation being like a marriage between a bride and a groom. And you can't reduce a marriage to just the minimum entrance requirements. Like you can't reduce marriage to just signing a legal certificate. You can't reduce marriage to just the wedding ceremony that takes place on a particular day. Yes, that's when a marriage officially begins, but marriage is about so much more than that. Marriage is about doing life together. It's about experiencing life together. It's about the relationship of two people that become one. Daryl Bach uh, says this, in most gospel presentations that I hear, The gospel is set forth primarily, if not exclusively, as a transaction to be experienced in a moment in time. To believe or to exercise faith is to trigger the transaction and fulfill the gospel. Now, what makes this tricky is that there is a transaction that is a part of the gospel and that allows us to experience God's good news, however, There is more than this to the gospel. What Bach is saying is that salvation is more than just 
a transaction with God that takes place at one moment in time, one punctiliar moment in time. That salvation is not just a moment of faith, that salvation is a life of faith, that the gospel doesn't just focus primarily on a moment of salvation or a moment of faith, it focuses on a life of faith, a life of salvation. My brother, uh, Gil Stafford, who has gone on to be with the Lord, uh, was one of our leading uh, theologians in the denomination that we are a part of. And he was uh, a teacher for many, many years at our uh, primary seminary in Anderson. And one of the smartest guys, really, that I've ever been around. He wrote a lot of books. And, and I love all the books that he wrote. One of the books that's one of my favorite is a, is a smaller book, actually. Maybe that's the reason I like it, because it's a smaller book and it's less words. But anyway... Uh, it's a book that is entitled The Life of Salvation. Life of Salvation. And the whole essence of the book is about, when we talk about salvation, we can't just talk about it as a moment of salvation. But that what Scripture talks about is the life of salvation. And he talks about the Trinitarian involvement in this life of salvation. He says, God initiates our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. And the Holy Spirit leads us as we live the life of salvation. I love that. Salvation is not just about one single transaction that takes place at one specific moment when we pray one specific prayer. Salvation is about a transformation that begins with a yes to Jesus. It may begin with a prayer. It begins with a yes to Jesus, but it continues with saying yes to Jesus. Salvation is about following Jesus. Like, that's what salvation is all about, following Jesus. Like, when we talk about our church, like, we have a mission statement, we have core values, but we also have just what we have written as like, this is our identity. Like, like what is our identity as a church? And our identity as a church is, that, is simply this. We are a community following Jesus. Like that's who we are. That defines who we are. That is our identity. We are a community following Jesus. So there's the meeting the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven gospel. And then there is, I think, what we could call the angry God gospel. And maybe some of you grew up in churches where that was kind of the gospel that you got was the angry God gospel. This gospel focuses on an angry God who is just kind of waiting to punish us when we fall short of his standards. But the reality is that God's posture towards us is not one of anger it's one of love. And that verse in John that almost everyone in the world is familiar with, John 3.16, is the reminder of that. For God so loved the world. Not that God was so ticked off at the world. Not that God was so angry at the world. Not that God was so disgusted with the world. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, the Bible 
does talk, for some of you, you're going, well, doesn't the Bible have something to say about the wrath of God? Doesn't the Bible talk about the wrath of God? Yeah, the Bible talks a lot, actually, about the wrath of God. But God's wrath is actually an expression of his love. God's wrath is the fierceness of a parent protecting their child. It's a wrath that is not directed toward the child. It is a wrath that is directed toward anyone or anything that is hell-bent on hurting that child. It's a wrath that is the product of being deeply invested in the good of that child. It is a wrath that is deeply invested in justice. And whenever there is injustice toward the children of God, it is a wrath that manifests itself. God's love is not this lazy tolerance toward anything and everything It's a love that fights for us. It's a fierce love that fights for us. It's a love that wants the best for us. It's a love that is furious, that that it's furious at anything that keeps us from experiencing God's best. You want to get God angry. What gets God angry is anything that would keep you from experiencing God's best in your life. He's not angry at you. His wrath is not directed at you. His wrath is directed at anything that would keep you from experiencing his best in this life, the life that you were created for, the life that he put you on this planet for. That's what God's wrath is all about. Yeah, preach it now, okay? Might even get an amen from this group today. All right. I feel like I need to wipe my forehead. All right, third one. This is what we could call the you can have it all right now gospel. This gospel focuses on a God whose number one priority is to make us healthy, wealthy, and successful right now. You can have victory over sickness right now. You can have victory over poverty right now. You can have victory over failure right now. And here's the deal. All of that, all of that, all of that is true. Absolutely, absolutely true. But the gospel is so much more than that. The you-can-have-it-all-now gospel is not the gospel that the Apostle Paul lived. Have you ever read his biography? Like, he gives us his biography in 2 Corinthians 11, and this is how he describes his life, okay? You tell me if it fits into the you-can-have-it-all-right-now gospel. He says, I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold, I have been naked, everything else and everything else and above everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all of the churches. 
The you can have it all now gospel is not reflected in Paul's life. And the you can have it all now gospel is not the gospel that Jesus lived. Like Jesus' life was not up and to the right. It just was not. It was a downward journey to the cross. We are in the Lenten season, which is the reminder of Jesus' life being this downward journey to the cross. The you-can-have-it-now gospel is not, not the gospel that Christians who have been persecuted and even have died for their faith have lived. The you-can-have-it-all-now gospel is not the gospel that Christians dealing with some kind of lifelong chronic disease are living. All of them, for Paul, for Jesus, for the martyrs, for those who've been persecuted, for others, for you, for me living in this broken, sinful world, the hope of the resurrection is not the promise that we can have it all now. The hope of the resurrection is that we know that God wins. That's the hope of the resurrection, is that we know that God wins. And when you know that God wins, it allows you to live a victorious life no matter what you are going through. You can live victoriously when you are healthy, and you can live victoriously when you are not healthy. You can live victoriously when you are wealthy, and you can live victoriously when you are not so wealthy. You can live victoriously when you are successful, and you can live victoriously even when you fail. No matter what, God wins, and if you are in Christ, you win as well. That's the gospel of Jesus. And then the last I won't spend a lot of time with this, uh, especially since we're having an election this November. But anyway, this is the kingdom of God is a political kingdom gospel. The kingdom of God is a political kingdom gospel. This gospel focuses on a God whose kingdom is primarily political and is focused on getting and maintaining power. This is the kingdom that many of the Jews thought Jesus was going to bring when he came claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. He was going to overthrow this oppressive Roman government and set up this new political reality, this new political system. But then you read the Gospels <laughs> And you realize, first of all, Jesus doesn't even go to Rome. Like you would think that if he's going to deal with those political realities, that he would at least go to Rome. But he doesn't even go to Rome. He doesn't take on the political powers of his day, even though everyone is clamoring for him to take on the political powers of his day. Everyone is clamoring for him to, to run for office like to get into some leadership to make a difference in this political reality. But, but Jesus' approach to politics uh, is described by one theologian as political indifference. He refused to engage in the political activism of the day. And that's because he was focused on a bigger enemy 
than Rome. And he was focused on a bigger, more enduring kingdom than the political kingdoms of this world that come and go. He was focused on a kingdom that never ends. He was focused on a kingdom that no matter what the system is, no matter where we are in history, no matter who is in control or not in control, this kingdom can come and this kingdom can reign and this king can rule. That was the kingdom that Jesus was focused on. So what do we do with like the fact that we get all of these little gospels that have elements, of course, of of the gospel of Jesus, but tend to kind of focus on certain things and almost become our own little personal gospels. Well, every generation has to do the hard work of, of rediscovering the gospel, Jesus' gospel. We have to do the hard work of disentangling the gospel from versions of the gospel that are shaped by cultural pressure, both inside the church and outside the church. We have to keep, this sounds so simple, but it's so, just in being in the church for so long, you just, the simplest thing is the thing that we so often forgot is you just forget is that you just have to keep going back to the Word. You just have to keep going back to the Gospels. You have to keep going back and saying, what did Jesus actually say? What did Jesus actually express? How did he talk about the Gospel? How did he talk about eternal life? How did he talk about salvation? How did he talk about entering the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of heaven? And then how did Paul who, is, who, who wrote more than anyone else in, in the New Testament, who was an apostle, a disciple, you know, ill-timed, he referred to himself. What, what did Paul actually say? We just have to keep going back to the source and keep rediscovering, rediscovering Jesus' gospel. Everyone, everyone, not just people connected to church or people that are thinking about Jesus or thinking about spirituality, just everyone in the world, everyone in the world bases their lives on some kind of gospel, some message about what the good life is all about. And it, it may be the gospel of upward mobility or the gospel of career success or the gospel of some other identity that becomes more important than our identity in Christ or the gospel of the last left or the gospel of the right or some other gospel. But this is Jesus' gospel. It's the good news that God has come in Jesus and that God is at work in human history establishing his kingdom and entering that kingdom begins when we respond to Jesus' invitation. The invitation that he gave to this rich young man. The invitation that he extends to every single person on the face of the planet. 
come and follow me. This is the gospel that gives life meaning. This is the gospel that truly defines the good life. This is the gospel that becomes the source of our hope. The source of our hope in the present and the source of our hope for the future. God, we thank you so much for entering into our broken world and to proclaiming the gospel, for proclaiming the gospel, for living the gospel, for being the gospel, for being our salvation, for entering into our brokenness and our death and our pain on the cross so that we could enter, we could enter into your life enter into your wholeness and enter into your Lord keep us fixed on your good news keep us fixed on the gospel may we experience the gospel in our own lives and may we share that gospel with the world in the name of Jesus we pray Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.